Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to join us. I'm the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. Those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. Today's episode is going to have more of a regulatory bent. We're here to discuss the EE01 Component 2 Pay Data Reporting, which is due for submission on the September 30th of this year. I've read the FAQs for the Component 2 submission, and as a non-lawyer, a trade I share in common with most of my listeners, I must say it's pretty complex, confusing, and quite, quite a large task that needs to be accomplished in a very short period of time. Here to discuss the topics are some real lawyers, senior partner Mark Adams and partner Maggie Spell of Jones Walker LLP. They both work in the great city of New Orleans in Louisiana, just one of Jones Walker's 15 locations. For more than 30 years, Mark has represented employers in disputes before federal and state courts and regulatory agencies. Drawing on the depth and breadth of his experience, he counsels employers on the developments of effective human resources policies, procedures, and strategies for complying with federal and state labor and employment laws. He also works with businesses to limit exposure to employment claims, litigation, and government agency investigations. Maggie focuses her practice on cases brought under federal, state, and local employment laws, including the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and the Age Discrimination in Employment Act. She regularly offers wage and hour compliance advice and has represented employers in numerous Fair Labor Standards Act collective actions and state law wage and hour class actions. Mark, Maggie, thanks so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us, Jim. Absolutely. Why don't we jump right in? For those of our listeners who are not fully aware of the requirements, do you mind explaining what needs to be filed, when, and which employers must file? Sure, Jim. I'd be happy to, to take that question. Um, so component one, just to, to go back to that briefly, is the piece that if you're obligated to file an EEO1 report, you've been filing for years. That is required for employers, including federal contractors, with 100 or more total employees, and that's either full-time or part-time employees, during the relevant workforce snapshot period. And, and we'll get into more detail about that in a moment. Um, but those are the people who have to submit component one. I say that only because who has to submit component two is a little bit different. Uh, employers, including federal contractors, who have 100 or more employees during that snapshot period have to file component two. The distinction here is that if you're a federal contractor with 50 to 99 employees, you're obligated to file component one, but not component two. So there's there's a little bit of a gap there. Um, so generally speaking, people with 100 or more employees are going to have to file the component two data, which is due uh, by September 30th of this year, pursuant to a district court's order um, a few months ago. Uh, and so what is going to need to be filed is this, what the EEOC is calling component two. 
that's going to require a couple of different things. Uh, first, you have to report the summary compensation data for your employees. To do that, you use the box one on your W-2. Um, and, and Mark and I can talk in a moment about why that's not the greatest measure to use for this purpose. Um, if you'll re- recall, the, the EEOC's goal here is to take a look at whether there are explanations for or, or pay gaps out there between what men and women are being paid. Um, so here you're to use that box one from the W-2 as the measure of pay that you're reporting to the EEOC for component two. Um, And you're tallying the total number of employees who fall into each compensation band. And those are laid out very, very clearly by the EEOC on its website and also on the form itself. Um, You you tally the total of number of employees who fall into each one, and then you, you add up their wages to put in that blank. Um, and then regarding the hours worked, that one gets a little bit more complicated, as you can imagine. Um, if we're talking about non-exempt employees, you have to report the actual hours worked. Um, the, this uses the FLSA model of what hours worked means. So this does not include things like paid time off paid sick leave, paid holidays, et cetera, which, as you can guess, would be included in that W-2 compensation. And then turning to exempt employees, if you have actual hours worked, great. You could report that if you maintain accurate records of that information. If you don't, which we're guessing is the vast, vast majority of employers with exempt employees, You report essentially a proxy of 40 hours per week for full-time employees and 20 hours per week for for part-time employees times the number of weeks that they're employed. I know that's a lot of information. Um, It is, but, you know, it's important that that people understand it. Um, Concerning the the snapshot periods, um, that's... People that uh, have to file the component two have to only have to do it if they have a hundred or more employees, mostly, right? And that's during a chosen window of time for the years that they have to report. Can you just explain a little bit about that? And let me. And is there any wiggle room that that offers employees? The rule is that each March thirty one, all employers with one hundred or more employees must file the EEO one report. And this is where it gets a little bit murky because when do you determine when an employer or whether an employer has 100 or more employees? Title VII is very specific because it provides that you're covered if you have the threshold number of employees in each of the threshold number of work weeks in the current or preceding uh, calendar year. The 100 employee requirement is not defined the same way. It just simply says if you have 100 or more employees, you must file. The regulation further provides that the employer can choose any pay period between October 1 and December 31 of the preceding year as the snapshot date for for the file. And the regulations further say that the determination of whether you have 100 or more employees is based on the number of employees in the snapshot. 
So again, that's where it gets kind of murky because if you choose, if you have a hundred or more employees on March 31, but you choose a, a, a snapshot period between October 1 and December 31 of the preceding year in which you don't have a hundred employees, um, then it raises the question, are you really covered? Um, I think the, the intent here is probably, even though it's not expressed, is probably that if you have 100 or more employees at any time during the October 1 to December 31 period, then you're covered. And then it's up to you to choose whichever snapshot period you want that essentially um, is the uh, easiest one or the most favorable one to use. So if it, if this if you know if you have a hundred employees at in March and then ostensibly you have to file the the component two, and then you take a look through your your uh, the period that you can choose your snapshot from, and say in the beginning of that period you have a hundred employees, but somewhere in the middle someone had quit and now you only have ninety nine employees, would you be able to say? Well, I don't have to file because I can choose this one snapshot where I only have 99 employees. Technically, I think no. Technically, I think the intent is that if you have 100 or more employees at any time during that October 1 to December 31 period, then you're supposed to file. But there's really no check on it. You know, it's not like the EEOC or the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, which uh, has joint jurisdiction over the EEO one report are going to um, have have any way of checking to see which employers have a hundred or more employees. I mean, I suppose they could check payroll tax reports that are turned into the IRS, uh, but 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 those are on a quarterly basis, and I doubt that they have that um, that capability or the resources to do that. So. Um, to answer your question, is there some wiggle room here? Yes, I suppose there is, but it's not in keeping with the spirit of the regulatory requirements. I think some of the guidance on the EEOC's website uh, supports Mark's uh, theory about kind of the intent. It, there they talk about if the employment levels fluctuate above and below 100 employees during that October to December period, the employer isn't obligated to choose a pay period when it has 100 or more employees, but then goes on to say they may choose whichever workforce snapshot period at once between October 1 and December 31st of the reporting year, suggesting that they're still expecting you're going to report, even if you pick a period that is has less than 100 employees. All right. Thanks for that clarification. Um, just real quickly, I, I I was looking through the FAQs and I couldn't find an answer. What about contract workers? Do they count towards the overall tally of employees? No. Contract workers um, are, I assume you mean temp, temp agency workers. Or independent contractors. Uh, yeah, or freelancers, anything like yeah, that. Yeah, let's talk about each separately. Temp agency workers are reported by the temp agency who pays them. It, it's... It, you report only payroll employees. So leased employees don't count toward the hundred employees. Those are reported by, or those go in the count for the temp agency who referred those workers. 
independent contractors are not employees, so they're not counted either. But that's another good reason why you should make sure you're properly classifying workers as either employees or independent contractors, because you may not be including someone on your EEO-1 who is technically an employee, but you have classified as an independent contractor. And also temporary workers or workers who are hired on a job basis, such as in the construction trades, those are not counted. And workers who are hired um, on a temporary basis through a union hiring hall, for example, those are not counted. Okay, great. As we know, the date is rapidly approaching. September 30th is shockingly close. Uh, Additionally, employers... It was decided that they had to file component two compensation data for both 2017 and 2018 by this date. Uh, in your opinion, can employers realistically be expected to get that much data together that quickly? Maggie, you want to take that? <laughs> sure. Um, I, I think I, I always hate this answer, but I think it depends. Uh, I think there are going to be employers who absolutely don't have a realistic chance of getting this data together because of how it's stored. Uh, if an employer, for example, has this type of data stored across a variety of different databases, some may be operated by vendors or outside sources uh, where it just makes it next to impossible and they have a really thin staff, they may not be able to get it together. But I think most employers can do it if they follow some some key steps, such as um, touching on what I what I just mentioned. You know, looking at where these pieces of information are stored, um, coming up with some sort of consistent process for identifying where the data is located, how they can efficiently gather it, sorting it, and then they're going to have to also verify the accuracy of the information. Um, Some of this uh, will be, for example, using the job categories, they'll be able to refer back to their EEO-1 if they're using the EEO-1 component one data, excuse me, if they're using the same snapshot period, which they're not obligated to do. Um, But that's that's a key reason why somebody may consider using the same snapshot period is to short circuit that particular piece. Um, it's really hard to answer the question of whether it can realistically be done because it's so employer specific. Yeah. Let me just add to this. I think that it's going to be really tough for smaller companies with small HR staffs um, to meet this deadline uh, and to meet this filing requirement. Um, Many small employers don't have a dedicated HR manager, or it may be a one uh, one person HR department. And those are the companies that are gonna have the hardest time uh, meeting these requirements. But the bigger companies by and large, with the bigger HR staffs and the resources to go out and hire uh, a service, for example, um, that can do this uh, comp- data compilation for them, uh, should be able to meet this requirement. It just comes down to resources. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Something that occurs to me um, while we're talking about this is, you know, you mentioned Maggie earlier that people should audit their classifications, their uh, employee classifications. It's really important that this data be 
accurate, right? Because if you introduce, you know, inaccuracies into it, that could skew how you're perceived or how you're received, I should say. Is that correct? Well, there are a couple of different things there. I think you're absolutely correct that it could skew how you're perceived or what the EEOC is going to do with that data, or quite frankly, whomever else ends up with this data down the road to the extent it's not kept confidential um, or is subject to a FOIA request at some point in time. But the other thing is you're obligated as an employer to submit accurate data to the EEOC in your EEO1 report. So, and there are penalties that come along with uh, filing an inaccurate report. And I think Mark can probably offer more on that piece. Criminal penalties, criminal fines, and even imprisonment for filing false uh, data or data, a report that you know to be false. There is no fine or penalty for not filing or for filing late. Uh, The EEOC could sue you and get a a federal court to order you to file the report, but that's highly unlikely. I don't think they have the resources uh, uh, or the desire to engage in that kind of litigation, um, which they would have to carry on on a massive scale. Um, But there are criminal fines and penalties, including imprisonment for knowingly filing a false report. If someone had already filed their EEO-1 and then while they're getting ready to file their EEO-2, they find that there were mistakes, like classification mistakes or other kinds of mistakes, what would you advise someone to do in that point? Because if they submit a second set of data based on us, you know, if they've fixed those mistakes, then won't their data be different on the second submission than it was on the first one? You can always file a corrected report. But you you could also, if you had a concern about that, and I'm being a little sneaky here, I guess, if if it was somebody who maybe wasn't employed for the entirety of the October 1st to December 31st period, you could pick a snapshot period when they weren't there um, to get around that piece. You could pick a different workforce snapshot period. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they're 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 the the fact that you can choose a different snapshot period for your component two report than the one you use for your component one report uh, means that there are going to be some of those discrepancies. Okay, but but that that doesn't that really doesn't address your question, which is what if the data in what if you discover in in preparing your component two report that some of the data you reported in your component one report was inaccurate. And my answer to that is you can file a corrected report um, or you can choose a different snapshot period. I think the fact that you can choose a different snapshot period and as Mark said, your data is not going to match up does highlight some of the reasons why we're not sure exactly how useful this data is going to be to the EEOC um, because it's not going to line up necessarily to the extent that they want to look back at, at component one um, or they want a bigger picture of, you know, what the employer is doing because it is such a narrow snapshot. You guys, uh, those are great answers, by the way. Thank you. Um, You guys mentioned that there weren't any consequences. Is that for everybody? There's no consequences if someone doesn't uh, file in time or 
at all? Well, I'm not going to say there are no consequences. Okay, there, there, are, <laughs> there is no fine or penalty for not filing. The um, regulations specifically authorize the EEOC to file suit to compel compliance through uh, an order from a federal court. So, you know, theoretically, there could be consequences for not filing, but realistically, probably not. For um, federal contractors, the risk is a little greater because of the uh, ability of OFCCP to conduct an audit. Uh, audits are, those audits are conducted randomly, but they typically include uh, a request for the employer's EEO-1 report. And if an employer did not file an EEO-1 report, then OFCCP could compel compliance through a um, um, conciliation agreement and, as a condition for closing the audit. And practically speaking, Jim, to kind of go back to a point that you hit on earlier about how you may be perceived um, it, re regarding either what you submit or in this case, you know, what you don't submit. Uh, if you were to get, for example, a charge of discrimination filed and the EEOC sent out a request for production and asked for a, a copy of your component two data, you know, if it were, if it were relevant um, and you say, yeah, sorry, we didn't do that. As Mark said, there's not necessarily a penalty, but the EEOC may uh, factor that into its analysis uh, in looking at and investigating the charge. Can't say it's going to have any sort of impact, but that's just kind of a, a practical consequence of not submitting. Yeah, many years ago, when I started practicing law, one of the standard requests for information you would get from the EEOC whenever a charge was filed was for a copy of your EEO-1 report. I haven't seen that in years uh, in a request for information from the EEOC, but I suppose they could reinstitute that practice of asking for the uh, company's EEO-1 report, particularly if the uh, discrimination complaint involved pay. Mm -hmm. uh, so that would be another potential consequence uh, if the employer didn't file uh, and the EEOC requested a copy of the EEO-1 report uh, and the employer uh, couldn't produce it, then the EEOC could require compliance um, as uh, part of its remedy for the, um, for the charge and could enforce that uh, by filing suit. And then, of course, taking it one step further, if you were to end up in, in a lawsuit that involved uh, some sort of compensation piece related to race or gender, I would imagine that the plaintiff's lawyer would be asking in that first set of requests for production for a copy of your e of your EEO-1 report, particularly the component two data. And I guess, depending on who the judge is, they may or may not uh, look down on you for that. But, you know, again, even in that situation, um, I don't believe a court could compel compliance because only the EEOC is authorized to file suit to compel uh, compliance with the EEO-1 filing requirements. So I think in private litigation between private litigants, if a uh, employee's lawyer were to ask for the EEO-1 report and you didn't have it, that would be the end of the inquiry. Oh, sure. I'm not suggesting they could actually yeah. 
compel you, but I can just hear the, well, clearly they have something to hide since they didn't right. bother to even file the component to yeah. that. <laughs> this is very interesting. Um, I'm going to posit an analogy or a, uh, a scenario, you know, if you ever remember writing essays in college, you know, especially when you had to do it during an exam and the, the deadlines, you know, you only have two hours, you only got halfway through your exam. And I don't think at that point, anyone just gives up and leaves, you submit what you have, you know, and I could clearly, I could easily envision companies scrambling to get all this stuff ready. That September 30th deadline comes up and they just say, well, we are not, we don't have a complete, but we have something, maybe it's better to submit no, something than nothing at all. What do you guys think about that? No. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> wouldn't do okay. it because that would be filing a report that you know is, uh, is incorrect, which could subject the company to criminal penalties. There's certainly not a box on the EEOC's uh, EEO1 component 2 data that says, you know, this is an incomplete uh, report. So as Mark said, it, it just wouldn't be accurate. Yeah, my advice to anybody in that situation would be either to uh, file for an exception uh, or an exemption. Um, and there is a procedure for requesting a, an exemption from the filing requirement based on undue hardship. I've never heard of anybody asking for it, never known anybody uh, to do so, but uh, we may see some of that as we get closer to the September 30th deadline. Uh, have no idea how EEOC would react to that, but um, if if I were asked by a company what to do in that situation where they just, you know, knew they couldn't complete the report on time, uh, and the, and ask me should they file what they had. Um, I would say no, either don't file or ask for a hardship exception. Uh, that's a great answer. What about late submissions? Is there any, you know, is that a, a something that uh, employers could use as a strategy? Yes, uh, because again, there is no fine or penalty for not filing or for filing late. And I've known a number of employers over the years that have filed their EEO-1 reports late with no, with no consequences. There's always the possibility, and and if Mark is saying, you know, people have done this in the past, this may be a moot point, but the EEOC could also always shut down its uh, receptacle? The, the portal, and they do portal. that. Thank they do you. that. Um, the, typically, the, uh, the EEO-1, what we now know of as the EEO-1 component one report, typically EEOC would leave the reporting portal open for some indefinite period of time after the deadline and employers could file late, but at some point they shut it down and you have to ask for permission to file late. Um, and I suspect that, that uh, they'll probably follow that same procedure with the component two report. They'll probably leave it open for a little while and then they'll shut it down. Is there an official method of requesting an extension or requesting, you know, the ability to, to file late? Yes, there is a procedure. It's in the regulations. 29 Code of Federal Regulations, Section 1602.10 um, provides a procedure or a mechanism for employers to request a hardship exemption uh, from having to file. Uh, they have to show undue hardship. Um, 
which is not really defined. But again, I've never heard or known of anybody um, requesting an exemption. All right. Well, um, just one last question. Do you guys have any uh, advice for employers or anything else that you would want our audience to know about this? I guess the, the, the parting advice I would have would be do your best uh, to comply. Um, but if you find yourself, find that you can't, um, it's like the article we wrote, Henny Penny, the sky is not falling. I, I agree completely with Mark. You know, this isn't so much advice, but I'm going to be really curious to see what, if anything, the EEOC actually does with this data. Um, and I think that'll tell us a lot about uh, whether this will ever happen again. Yeah, this. Let me let me say this too. This whole thing is politically driven. Um, the component two regulation was enacted during the previous administration, during the last year of the previous administration. And the current administration was totally opposed to it, came in into office uh, vowing to do away with it. The only problem was they didn't have a quorum on the commission to shut it down. So, but it's, but, but they do now, they have not shut it down because of this court order and the political fallout. Um, but it's still the current administration that's in charge of the EEOC. And I think the career people at the EEOC may have some interest in in uh, these reports, but the politicians who are in charge of the agency, I don't think are interested in it at all. And um, I'm like Maggie, I'm very curious to see what, if anything, that they do with this data once they get it. Keep in mind, too, that the authorization from the Office of Management and Budget was to collect data for only two years. So for this report form to be renewed, um, EEOC would have to go back to the Office of Management and Budget for approval to extend the authorization. And remember, Office of Management and Budget is the agency that shut this thing down and, and brought on the lawsuit that resulted in uh, reinstituting the rule. Great. That's all great. Really great information. I hope this helps contextualize EEO on component two pay data submission for our, our readers. Um, I will include some additional resources in the description, including the article that Mark mentioned um, and and probably uh, to the FAQ uh, and, and reporting site for the EEO one filing. So thank you both, uh, Mark and Maggie, for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for Thank having you. us. Listeners, we are always interested in suggestions you might have for what HR Works should cover next. Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HR Works Podcast with any thoughts or concerns you have about the podcast in general, or just to say hi. Thanks for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.